This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English. Hello and welcome to David's Book Talk, and we are going to talk to an old friend today, Charles Todd, otherwise known as Charles and Carolyn Todd, whose new book, the 21st, is it really 21 in the series, The Black Ascot with Inspector Rutledge. Has there really been 21 books? Absolutely, I can't believe it either. <laughs> it's twenty. I mean, it seems like it was. I can remember we were still reading the the first book and and you know, Testa Wills and thinking, wow, what a great series this is going to be. And here we are, twenty twenty one books later. <laughs> it just the numbers. I mean, how do you guys do it? I don't know. I mean, we just keep working away. We enjoy it. I think that's the greatest part of it. We love what we do. We love the books. Is it, but and is, that is it, takes a lot of the uh, effort out of it. it. It makes it a pleasure instead of a task. Well, you're such, but break out the champagne. That's right. <laughs> but, I mean, when you think about writing a book, I mean, everybody, you, to think of an idea of a book is the easy part, but to, to be able to execute that idea into something that's plausible and fun to read and a, a good mystery, that's not easy to do. No, and and I don't know where... Our success comes from. I, 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 I wondered about that. Why we have been so lucky, but we've had uh, good publishing houses, good agents, good editors, and uh, they keep us. They keep us working. And you're good people too. I mean, you're you're both good people. I mean, I've never I've never encountered you at a book signing where anybody was rude or or you were full of yourself or anything. And you're always easy to approachable, totally approachable. And that's not true of every author you meet. <laughs> but we have well, cats. They well, keep us in line. Is that what it is? At the same time, too, we vividly remember what it was like when we were first starting out. And the many people in the mystery community, especially, that were really kind to us. People who were big names that didn't have to spend time talking to us or making us feel welcome that really extended a hand of friendship to us and we've always felt strongly about paying that forward. I, I agree with that. It's, it was an amazing gift from people who, who really didn't have to take the time and so the only way we can thank them is to make sure that well, that we pass it on, as Charles said. Right. And every time I read one of your books, I think to myself, when am I ever going to see this on TV? And we've talked about this before, I know. But I, I, all I can think of is, what a great, if they could just do this right, what a, what a spectacular series this would make. All these books. I mean, it seems like such, it seems so sad that we haven't seen anything on TV or movies or anything. We've had requests. But we don't want to lose control of of the character of Ian Rutledge. We work too hard to make him the man he is, and you have to be careful when you when you sign your book away that that they don't do things with him that you would 
two were not in character. Right, exactly. And he's such a precious character. I mean, he's and he's delicate. And he's certainly delicate in this book. This is one of his more delicate moments in this book. We can't. I don't want to. Forget. I wouldn't call it so much delicate as haunting. Haunting. It was a very haunting experience, and sometimes with something like that, um, it can either burn a person out or uh, give a person new. New hope and, and um, a new impetus to go forward. Did you know before you started writing this book? Did you know that what happened in the book was going to happen? Did you know all of this, or did, did no it idea? No idea. I mean, we don't outline. Uh, Charles can tell you. We start out on page one, and we don't know who all the characters are going to be, and who did what to whom, and who the final uh, uh, villain is going to be. And that's the fun of it. Yeah, I'll I mean, bet. We, we're just right there. And and along with the reader, we're finding out how it's going to end. Did you ever have days where you, the writing's not working and you just sort of stop writing? I mean, do you ever have days like that? Oh, yes. Charles? I, I think in many ways you have it backwards, David, because... You, it's, it might be at 2 o'clock in the morning or God knows where you might be when suddenly it strikes you that, ah, this is where I think this is going next and you can't wait to sit down. It's not, I don't know how people do it when they say, well, I go into the office at 6 a.m. and I write until, you know, 1 p.m. and that's it. Right. Um, it may work for them. I'm not casting aspersions on it, but it's more a question of once you get that story in you, you just can't wait to get it out and get it on paper and email it off to Caroline to see what she thinks and what her input's going to be on that particular section of the book that we're working on. Yeah, what's, what's really you wonderful... Don't, you don't just sit in front of a typewriter with blank paper going, hmm, what am I going to write today? <laughs> and that's terrifying. To even think of it having that happen is terrifying. It's got to be. I mean, it's like the, the, you don't know where to go. You don't know what to say. But uh, you know what's, what's great about Rutledge is I always like that Rutledge likes to ruffle feathers. He loves to ruffle feathers. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, but, he's, a, he's an independent guy. <laughs> But he doesn't. He doesn't seem to care that that he really is hurting people. I mean, that he's investigating things is hurting other people. He knows he has to do it, and the fun of it is when he does, and they get so they get so defensive. That makes the book more fun to read. This is what happens in real life. If you, if you, I spent a lot of time talking with law enforcement people, especially homicide detectives, and. They will intentionally, when they're talking to somebody, try and get them on the defensive, get an emotional response rather than a well-thought-out response, because you're less likely to think clearly through whatever it is you might be lying about when you're off kilter. Mm-hmm. If it's all a calm, neat, nice conversation with pauses where you can stop and put your words together precisely, you're never going to get anywhere as an investigator. But the intent is to 
shake them up a little bit so that their their immediate reaction and an almost involuntary response gives you insight into where the truth lies. Hmm. I, 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 is not a vicious person that just goes around and delights in making people's lives miserable. Right. But it, it's the old story that truth is guard is, is protected by a bodyguard of lies. Right. And even if you haven't killed somebody or been a part of the crime that was committed, you spend 30 minutes in the, the hands of a good um, uh, homicide detective, and it can be scary. I, I can remember when my uh, mother-in-law and father-in-law's house was um, burgled. And they were away, and I had to deal with the with the policeman coming in. And <laughs> I told my husband afterwards I was ready to confess to anything, whether I had done it or not. It was that that tense and and uh, uh, scary a moment for somebody who was innocent. That, that is. That's... A friend of mine was the uh, homicide. Chief of the Homicide Department at Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department in Charlotte, North Carolina. And just like Caroline said, just having an average conversation with the guy, <laughs> you know, there are some law enforcement people that just stare at you, you know, eyeball to eyeball to make you feel uncomfortable. But then there are those people that there's something about their countenance, their presence, their ability to work a situation to their benefit where, like Caroline said, you're ready to say, okay, I did it. I don't know what it was they did, but I did it. Right. That's interesting. That's, that's fascinating to hear that. I mean, but and it, it's got to be. I mean, I don't think I've ever really encountered something like that, but I, I did. I remember walking one night with my mom and, and the that police guy stopped us, and he thought I was—he thought I was the guy he was looking for, and that was unsettling. Now, I mean, he—oh, I can imagine. And, but I don't know why he thought it was me. I guess there was no other guy in the area. <laughs> he figured it had to be me. But it, it was—it was unsettling, and and you know, you, you you don't know what it's like until you actually go under what actually happens to you, and you actually—I mean, you, you think reading about it in the book, you know, that you, but you never really get the idea what it's like until it actually happens, until it. You're actually and imagine if you're actually guilty. If, imagine if you actually are guilty, and in the case, except in cases of a psychopath, any time, and I've had detectives tell me this: when you take another human life, even to a certain degree in warfare, although after repetition it becomes different, but if you murder somebody and actually commit that crime, it leaves a mark on you. Not a visible mark, but mm -hmm. an mark. Uh, no. Have you guys interviewed people that have that, that has happened to, to get an idea of what it's like? No, but I, I dealt have... with, with uh, a psychopath once or twice in my life, and I tell you, um, that's a scary experience. Yeah. 
I can I can only imagine. And it's not always, I mean, you think you're talking to a normal person, then you start to, it's like people you, you meet and you suddenly realize, you know, what kind of a person are they? Because they start saying things that are just crazy. And you, and you think, what are they really like? You know, and, and that, it's frightening to think about that, that there were people running around like that. Yeah, I mean, Rutledge it, deals mostly with ordinary people who were driven to commit a crime because of something that to them was far worse than murder, uh, a secret they didn't want to get out or, or a problem that they couldn't solve any other way. And we find that very no, interesting because what goes on in the average person's heart and mind when they start to contemplate murder. And, and this makes it far more interesting to us than, than say, drug dealers or, or uh, gangs or something like that, where, where you already have a, a set mental outlook. Right. Now, he, in this book, he's looking for people Alan. Rationalize it to, people rationalize it to themselves. And yes. Yes. A, a a rational explanation for irrational behavior, right. and it's when a perce perceptive person is able to come into that situation, and cause that rationale to start to unravel. This book feels a little bit different than the other ones. Is it me, or is it a little different? With the, the starting, you know, Alan Barrington being in the beginning, and then he's looking for Alan Barrington. It feels a little bit different than your other books. Am I right about that, or is that, or should it feel the same? No, actually, every book has two things going for it. One is what's going to be different about Rutledge's case this time, and the other one is how are we going to tell the story. And we were looking around at ideas, and the first one was, or the one we liked best, was the idea of what happened if he was assigned to a cold case, so cold that some of the people involved were dead, and he had to start from scratch and, and investigate not only the, the murder, but what happened to the man who... Uh, was found um, culpable at the inquest, but never stood trial. Right. So that's so, the challenge. That's a huge challenge for you guys. Yeah, but that's the interesting part. Yeah. If you play it safe and do the same yes. story over and over again, there's no challenge to it. But this one, we had to. In this one, we had to figure out where he goes, how he goes about. Um, uh, delving into the past, who he's going to turn to, and then some of the people thought that that um, Barrington was not guilty. Others were convinced that he should have been uh, taken out and hanged. But the question was, which ones were which? You right. couldn't always be sure. So getting at the truth was was very very difficult. So how how do you guys remember everything that happens in the book? I mean, when you have there's so much going on in the book, do you do you take notes or or do you, is it just all in your head? It's all in our head, like a movie. <laughs> it is really. So you you don't have any trouble remembering names and and what happened. Well, names sometimes Charles and I get into trouble. <laughs> we will think of the person as Fred, and I will think of the person as Tom. And we're about halfway through the book, and we realize we've been using both names. 
it's sort of funny. You have to go back and make sure you change all the the Freds to Tom or Tom to Fred. Has there ever been a a time in the 21 books that you've written, and well, not counting the best Crawford ones, but I'm talking about the Rutledge owners right now. But has there ever been a time where you wanted to quit, where you said it's too much, like we can't do it anymore? I haven't ever come to that point. Um, Charles and I have a very interesting view of, of writer's block, and I think that helps. Mm-hmm. So it, it never really gets that bad. I mean, it's bad, but it, I mean, you just have little humps you have to get over, there, is, what, is what I'm hearing. There are times when you get frustrated because you're in a situation and you can't resolve it for whatever reason, and sometimes going back and looking at, all right, where were we when things were working properly? And oh, how interesting. That gives us a clue of where we went off track. That's fascinating. You know, you, you, yeah. And I, I think one of the biggest problems in books that I read is Somebody will veer off course, but because they don't want to go back and rip up, you know, all those pages, they try to correct it and veer it back on the course. And it never seems to quite get back on track. Mm-hmm. And so by going back and saying, all right, where, where did we, oops, where, where did we lose something or overlook something or not set something up properly and move forward. But I think part of it, too, is, is quite frankly, I am my mother's son, and we're both very stubborn people, and we don't like, <laughs> when presented with a problem, we don't like to give up, quit, and say, ah, it's too hard. Right. It's, the, the worse the problem is, the more our intensity rises to solve that problem, by golly gosh darn it. You you have to walk away sometimes. One time we cut 15,000 words because they were going in the wrong direction entirely, and that's hard to do. Oh, wow. But that's the answer. If you look at it as a block, Mm -hmm. then you, you don't know how to surmount it. But if you look at it as a uh, where did we go off track? Where did we go wrong? And can you always can, can you, can you always go back and, and take care of it? Right? Can you always pinpoint where that actually is? Sometimes it's harder than others, but it 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 begins to be pretty apparent as you get closer. Did did that at all happen with the Black Ascot? This one? Um, I don't remember particularly, Charles. Yeah, it's one of those things when you finally get it all packaged up. I, I don't know if we just blot it out of our memory or right. what, but uh, you, you forget. It's like sometimes I don't care whether you're fixing something or preparing something in the kitchen. Anytime you're doing something and you find a solution and you get it all to work, and somebody says to you, well, how did you do that? And all of a sudden you realize that you don't remember exactly what the solution was. It's just you kept pounding away at it until right. something slid into place and it worked out okay, and you move on. Um, now, the, was the Black Ascot actually a race, or what, what was the Black Ascot? Oh, the Black Ascot was fascinating. 
what started this book <laughs> was it about two or three years ago. I can't remember exactly how long it's been, but we were going through um, a book on the 20th century uh, for information for another another novel, another mystery. Right. And as we were thumbing through the pages, here was the black ascot. Now, I had heard about that, but I had never seen pictures of it. What happened was um, King Edward VII um, died in the spring of 1910. Mm -hmm. And the ascot races were the main um, beginning of the, the social calendar in June. Hmm. Everybody who was anybody wanted to go to the Ascot races. If you remember in My Fair Lady, everybody had these fabulous hats and right. uh, unbelievable outfits. But what it really meant was that everybody went there and showed off their spring finery after the winter of, uh, uh, you know, an English winter. It must have been a, real, a lot of fun for a lot of people. But once Edward died, you see, yeah. the court went into mourning. Mm. And the first thought was, we're going to cancel Ascot races. Mm. It's a, a multi-day event. And somebody else said, well, you know, the king loved the races. Why don't we go ahead and have them and everybody wear the black of mourning? Oh. And they did that, and the picture showed us these women with black lace, black ostrich feathers, black gloves, men with, with the way their, their um, collars were and everything. You couldn't see the white. It was just absolutely amazing. This wasn't even in color, and it was striking. Huh. And, and the, the problem was, 1910, Rutledge was still at Oxford. So if we wanted <laughs> if we wanted him to be involved in a murder that took place in, in at the Black Ascot races, um, it would have to be a cold case later on. Exactly. Is this is so this an actual how, is this know, an actual picture? Like that works out. It, this picture on the cover is this an actual picture or is it a drawing? I can't even tell. It looks no, like it's. That, I can't tell either. Not, I mean. The, the people who do the covers for us are fabulous. I'm sorry, Charles, I didn't hear you. It, it, exactly what I was just agreeing with Caroline. It, the artists do a rendering of what we and the editor and our agent have sort of said. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a and a lot of times the original idea may even come from the art department and then we take a look at it and say, well, that's on the right track, but, you know, uh, so... But do you always know... All those right. Do you always know when it's the right cover? Yes. You'd, you can look at yeah. it and tell. It's, you know the story so well that you know that this cover or that cover fits it. Um, and something else, it just jars you. It, it's very interesting, but uh, uh, you do feel it. Now, in a typical book, in a typical Rutledge book, are there a lot of clues to the solution of each mystery? When Not necessarily. 
I mean, or, and or, um, do you it put? Depends on but you put red herring. What kind of mystery it is? <laughs> yeah. Well, just, you know, I I take a little bit of exception to that, and because of our style of writing, we don't actually sit down and say, "Oh, okay, let's put a red herring in right here." Right. It's more as we're telling the story and developing different characters and different situations throughout the book, some of them naturally lead Rutledge in the correct path. Right. Some are mere distractions. So Rutledge might interview one witness who, at the time that he's interviewing them, has very pertinent information that he takes great notice of, but then as he continues his investigation, it doesn't fit in. And that's not uh, like where we sat down and said, hmm, let's put the red bow tie in this scene right. because they'll think it's a clue, but it's not a clue, it's a red herring. Right. It's not quite that calculated, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the thing is, sometimes we'll say something earlier on in the book, and then later on we'll say, oh, you know, remember that that uh, little tidbit back there in the fourth chapter? Right. Don't you think this would fit in here as a uh, all of a sudden an important part of the story? Or we may say just the opposite. Well, we put that in the fourth chapter, but it's not going to go anywhere. It's going to be one of the dead ends that policemen quite often encounter in, a, in the course of a, an, an investigation. Which, um, do you have more trouble writing, or do you, do you take more time writing the Best Crawford ones or the Ian Rutledge ones? Or is it equal, do you think? Probably equal, don't you think, Charles? Maybe yeah, Rutledge gets uh, a little bit more because it's a, a more convoluted book. Mm-hmm. More, more, you think more? Uh, Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm oh, okay. Uh, it all depends on the book and how how many trippy points we run into in the plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, this book might work out well, and we didn't have to go back and. As I was saying, or, or run into a roadblock that we have to go back and, and straighten out. So as far as uh, the amount of time spent on that particular manuscript might be a little less versus this one, or you know, it, the gate, uh, the black ascot took a great deal because it was a cold case, and he had this large cast of characters spread all over the place that he was going around and meeting with and talking to and then going back again. And so that tends to make it a little more complex. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But some of the things that are in that book were very close to our hearts. We know Sandwich, the town of Sandwich, quite mm. well. Um, we know the Lake District quite well. The house in the Lake District is one we have visited. 
um, there's another thing. I won't use the example um, and, and give it away, but there's one other thing in there that we we had seen and remembered and thought we could could use in the the story. So many things are are turn out to be grist for the mill. Right. So many experiences you you can draw on or twist or use in a different way, but you it's almost as if you don't waste anything. Right. See, when we go to England to do our research, we don't go to England and say, all right, we're going, we have decided to set this murder mystery in this town. Let us go to that town and investigate. It's more, when we go to England, we're, we may have an idea about something, so we want to go back to a place that we've been to do a little more in-depth work, or we may go through, like, the Lake District or something as part of a whole trip. We found these little tidbits, and we set them aside, and it might be used in this book, it might be used in the next book, or it might be this book. It, it all depends. Right. So it's different with every book, so you can't really, it's hard to say when. Yeah. Equivocally, one is you know, whatever you know. Yeah, so many. And this is one of the reasons why we don't set many of the stories in London because London has been used so much, and mm. you find so many different possibilities in the English villages. A class system is more accessible. Everybody knows everybody, no matter whether you're the rag picker or the the rector. Um, you have different histories and backgrounds. You you can find out little tidbits that that work in a story that you had anticipated putting there. Right. Um, and you, and you, it, it really is. Uh, you, know, you you may store something for five years and mm-hmm. suddenly realize, oh, you rem- Charles, you remember we did so and so and so and so, or Caroline, right. do you remember that house? Let's use that this time. And so you do. Is, is Rutledge, I don't know why I'm asking this question, but I suddenly am curious. In your mind, is Rutledge a handsome man? He's an attractive man. Um, I don't know that he's, you know, he's a, um, like The Bachelor on TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite like that. But. No, but the. Um, I mean, if I if I told you if I told you to sit down and draw what he looks like, could you do it? Probably, if I could draw well enough to do it. <laughs> well, um, I see that's him. That's something that's a lot of fun for us because when we um, go to do talks, we'll say to people, well. What does Rutledge look like? And it's always fascinating to see all the the different answers that we get because if you notice, we don't really go into a great deal of detail about what Rutledge looks like. He's tall, he's slim, he's dark-haired, these kinds of things, but as far as the specific attributes, we kind of let that 
be decided by our readers, and it's always so much fun to go somewhere and ask that question and hear, sometimes they get really irate with each other, say, oh, absolutely not, that is not what he looks like at all. Exactly. <laughs> but I- this generally comes up when um, <clears throat> someone will ask the question, have you ever been approached for... Um, uh, film or TV, mm-hmm. and we will say, yes, we have, and these are the reasons that so far nothing has come of it. Who do you think would be a good Rutledge? Which actor would you choose? We've had everything from Liam Neeson to um, the uh, Hathaway who played um, the sergeant in the Endeavor series. Oh, right, 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 yes, yeah. And I, I in a million years, don't see Hathaway. The uh, I forgot his first name. His last name is Fox. Yeah, Lawrence Fox. I, I think is him isn't as, yeah. as Rutledge. No, I don't see him. Liam Neeson. I, I don't even know who in my mind, as as somebody who's read a lot of your books, and I I I've never really pictured anybody that looked like him. I, in my mind, I I don't know why that is. I mean, I, if you ask me who I thought he looked like the most, I, I don't even know that I could give you a name. Yeah, I mean that that's always very interesting when people do come up with a name, but that meant that they were able to put him into their imagination. Mm-hmm. And and figure out well, of that appeal to them. Well, we I think we talked before about his age. You don't really you don't really disclose how old he is. Well, he's about thirty now. Oh, he is about thirty. Okay. See, it's, it's, yeah, he's he's young. He's, he. But do you think there's anything in any of the books that would would indicate how old or how young he is? I mean, I, I'm trying to think of something that would. They would, they would well, we it. talk about the fact that he became a policeman in 1912, right. around 1912, mm-hmm. uh, right out of college, right out of university. So you, you, you figure 1912, he was 2021, 20, right? Right. So from 1912 to 1921, that's 11 years, uh, nine years? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah, so we, we figure he's but is it is it late twenties, early thirties. But the thing is, you know, I'm reading the books. I don't think about his age. I mean, am I, am I supposed to think about his age? Am I supposed to? Oh, and that's the whole point. And you know, if you would prefer an older detective, <laughs> you can see him that way. If you prefer a younger man, you can see him that way. I don't really know what I see when I read the books. I just kind of see him, and I and I don't. I, I guess I picture something in my mind, but I'm not quite sure what I do picture or what but age he, I picture. You find something you're comfortable with. Right. Exactly. That's you know. It doesn't I mean, that's, matter. That's the purpose, though, because we want the reader. The, the book, well, we use this example of what really attracted us to certain books and have such a visceral connection with the main protagonist. And a lot of it is where we are able to fit that character into a certain point of view for the individual reader. 
And that's why I still say I teach a course in character development and I explain to people there are certain things that just when you say that it was a sheriff from a rural county in South Georgia, you you already have a picture of what that person looks like. Mm. And so spending three pages to say that he's overweight, has a rumpled uniform, a toothpick in his mouth, and slightly balding is unnecessary. It's more interesting to know what characteristics that sheriff has that are unexpected. Mm-hmm. And you have to be careful. For a while there in, in detective fiction, it was considered um, uh, good to have a detective who was in some way weird. I mean, Poirot is an example. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes, to many people, is an example. Um, oh, gosh, I can't think of it. Um, oh, Archie, a good one. Uh, Charles. Nero Archie Wolf. Good one, and Nero Wolf, yeah. Nero mm. Wolf was uh, another one of these. Uh, now, I think today people look for someone who is more so you could you could sit more down like him more like them so you could get carolyn or, or charles you could sit down with a sketch artist and have and tell them exactly what rutledge looks like and i would love to see that drawing <laughs> that's how i can I say would <laughs> i would I love would to too i would love to you know I, I there is a very valid reason why we would not want to do that uh when the cover came out for Wings of Fire in hardback. There's a man on the cover in an Irish hat that is not Rutledge. The book takes place in Cornwall, not Ireland. And we had a fit, but it was the second book we ever had published, so our input on the jacket didn't have as much impact. Plus, when the cover did come out in paperback, they had changed it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so it did. It did change eventually. Yes, that's right. And that, yeah, that made you happy. The man's face off, off off the cover, which made us very happy. But I, you know, for private curiosity, sure. But we don't really want to say, "All right, here's a sketch of what we think Rutledge should look like." Therefore, you as readers should see him like this. Mm-hmm. We like the fact that readers have in their own mind's eye what Rutledge and what Best look like. We did the same thing with Best that we did with Rutledge. Mm-hmm. So you would never let Rutledge be on the cover? You would never let them put a picture of Rutledge? I prefer not to. Right. Because then that fixes in everybody's imagination what he looks like. Why do I? Why do I picture Alan Barrington as being a very handsome man? Just hearing that name, it makes it makes me it makes him sound like he's really I think handsome. He probably was because people who liked him had various reasons for for their liking, and I think he uh, he probably was. Very, very, uh, rather sophisticated. Right. And and certainly 
not pretty, but uh, certainly uh, handsome in the, a very attractive sense. You guys, you guys never get tired of writing Rutledge, do you? I mean, you never seem to. The, the series can. I mean, can, okay, we haven't run out of ideas. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna say, listen, we, we're not finished with it yet. Right. I'm just, I'm just curious whether sometimes you. I mean, I'm sure there's got to be moments where you want to write something different, completely different. That's when. That's you, when we write a short story. Right. You write a short story, so that that fulfills that wish. You don't have to. You don't. I mean, I'm, but as far as writing a whole other novel about another different character, do you ever want to do that? Well, Nothing we like that has come up yet. Um, we did do a short story. Walnut tree. Yes. Well, the walnut tree was special yeah. romance. But wasn't that fun to do something different like that? Oh yeah, that was fun to do. Yeah. Um, the only problem was that all of our fans wanted uh, the character in uh, the Murder Stone to become a serious character as well. Oh, so that that, that creates a whole other issue. Then, what do we do about yeah, that? Well, we'd love to see a story of. Isn't that people get it? Crawford, people have suggested that she might start her own series. Oh, really? Yeah, she's a fascinating woman. You could write a lot about her, but um, it hasn't. Really but do you stay? But do you stay with these characters because you really want to? I mean, or, or I mean, would you, when you hear that, do you do you instantly think, "Well, I'd love to do that, but I just don't have the time." Well, you get intrigued by it. But uh, as Charles said, we haven't said everything we need to say about Rutledge yet. Right. Um, we were curious enough about Hamish. We've used him in the short stories before the Battle of the Somme to mm -hmm. give some idea of what he was like as a person. But we wrote, wrote a short story called The Piper. Oh, yes, I remember um, that. That is, um, it's in the book The Tale of... Uh, Tales, and it's also online. Um, where Hamish, in the spring of 1914, before the war was even on the horizon, mm -hmm. dealt with a murder in his own backyard, so to speak, out in the Highlands. Hmm. And that way, we had a chance to see what he was like as a, a, a human being, and that was very interesting. Mm, so you do you do get to do other things, which is which is important, because I'm sure yeah, you have this. Yeah, we still would like, like to do Rutledge's great-great-grandson <laughs> really? in a modern setting. But we haven't found the right story yet. Do you get, do you get as much enjoyment out of writing as you do reading? Yes. Completely? I mean... Except Except it's Busman's Holiday. I enjoy a really good book, and and that gives me pleasure too. Right, but you you, you still get that as much enjoyment out of both. Yeah. Because I ha I've had writers will tell me that it's that it's work. It's just work to do. But you don't describe it as work. You don't. It doesn't sound to me like it is work to you guys. It sounds like it's it just enjoyment. Work. I mean, it it takes a lot out of you. Right. It's it's like gardening or or playing golf or any of the other pastimes where you have to put something in it to get it out, uh, get something out. Right. Exactly. 
It's, and that's that's great to hear. I, I just I and mean, every writer's different because every writer you talk. That's why it's so intriguing to talk to writers because everybody's different, and you never oh, know what, what they're going to say next. Well, as far as I'm concerned, uh, as I said, we haven't finished Rutledge's story, and I'm happy to go on with it. And I think Charles feels the same way. Right. How will you? About how will you ever know if you are finished with his story? I mean, will there ever get to a point where you're finished with his story? Do you think, or can it go on and on and on and on? And I don't know. I mean, we always felt in the series that there was a fifty-fifty chance that at some point Rutledge would go out in the back garden and shoot himself. Right. Because so many people with with post-traumatic stress disorder in that day. And so age. why doesn't he do that? I mean, why why is it that he doesn't? I mean, what is it about? Well, psychiatrists and psychologists have told us that the people who try to cope quite often will find a way to cope, I guess is the best way to, to put it, mm-hmm. are less likely to do that. Mm-hmm. And Rutledge comes back to the yard in in 1919, in the test of wills, desperate to find an answer so that he won't um, go out in the back garden. He doesn't want to leave his sister with that burden. Have you? Have and so he he struggles to cope. Right. Do you ever that, do you ever get letters from anybody that goes has been through what he's been through? Yes, we we've, we've talked to people who have, and it. When they tell us we get it right, it's it's the highest compliment we could get. Oh wow! Because we we never wanted to make this. Is it hard for those people to read your books? I mean, or do, do, does it? I don't know. They just quietly come up to us at a a talk or or somewhere where we're. Um, uh, They'll come up quietly. They don't make a big fuss over it. They'll come up just quietly to one side and. and say a word or two, but the way they look you in the eye and the way they say it, it, it tells you what they're trying to say. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, when they come up and, and... Do you get letters about from people, too, like that? Yeah, we have. Well, for example, we got a letter from a woman whose husband was in World War Two, and she said she couldn't understand some of the things that, that had that were there in him, how he had changed mm-hmm. because of what happened to him in the war. And she said, after I read the first Rutledge book, I understood. And she said, it's not the same, but it is the same. Well, that's wonderful. That, that must be very gratifying to hear that, to know that you've, that you've helped somebody to understand somebody that's near and dear to them's pain and suffering. I mean, that's got to feel good. Yeah, because well, we never used PTSD as a gimmick. Yeah. It was a real yeah. wound. Mm-hmm. It was odd, but we actually got an email from Hiram Maxim's granddaughter. Oh. Do you know who Hiram Maxim was? No, I must admit I don't. <laughs> Hiram Maxim was the man who invented the Maxim machine gun. Oh. It's called the Victor's Gun in uh, England, and the Germans called it the Maxim. But Hiram Maxim was a American of Irish descent that um, 
believe it was Iris, that said, that invented the machine gun, presented it to the United States uh, military, and they felt it was too wasteful of ammunition, very much like they did with the Gatling gun when Gatling brought that to their attention. Hmm. And uh, he was visiting a friend in Paris, and he said, you, you ought to try to sell it over here because these guys love killing each other. And uh, he did, and he... He sold the manufacturing rights to um, the French, the Germans, the Russians, and the English. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was pretty astounding to get an email from her. Well, you never—I guess you never know who you're going to hear from next. That's that's the thrill of it. I mean, you can. Yeah. It's amazing. We've had some fabulous letters from people. You know, they're so, so responsive. We had had Bess out for, like, maybe a year or two. Maybe we were on the third book. And I went to a talk at a library, and a woman came up to me afterwards and handed me a paper bag. And she said, don't look at this now, but I made this for you, and I think you'll enjoy it. Oh, wow. I took it home, and there was a teddy bear. Dressed like a World War One nurse, huh. her clothing was perfectly beautiful, and and there was even a bed to put the bear in. Uh, you know that was touching that somebody had gone to that much trouble. We just loved it. You guys have entertained us for so many years. I mean, these books are so entertaining. I I can remember nights where I just sat in my chair in astonishment, thinking this is so wonderful. I don't even want this to end. I'm so I'm enjoying it so much. And I I felt that with so many of your books, and you you can't duplicate that feeling. It is the most wonderful feeling in the world. And I you, you wish you could tell everybody. I mean, you, you wish you could tell the whole world how wonderful that feels. But I guess it is... Oh, I know. I mean, there are people whose books I read, uh, I finish them and think, oh, oh, I would love to have written that book. That's just wonderful. Right. And, but that feeling, that the wonderful feeling of a story that you're really enjoying and you really... In one way, you can't wait to get to the end of the story, but in another way, you don't want it to end because then what do you do afterwards? You've got to find something just as good for the next book. And that, oh, yes. That feeling. I've been there. And if that, that's a difficult thing to deal with sometimes. I mean, it's, it's almost traumatic for me sometimes when I read it. Yeah, I, I start looking at the page numbers and thinking, oh, it's, it's 50 uh, pages. Are, we, are we weird to feel that way? <laughs> Weird. And what it says is that the writer has captured something that speaks to the imagination. You know, I felt that way about a book called The Lake House by Kate Morton. Oh, my God. I mean, when I read that book, I remember I took it to a park and sat and read this book, and I was... I thought I was in heaven, just enjoying the way she was writing this book. It was just the most tremendous thing I'd ever re read. And I, you know, and I thought... My God, I, I just, I hope her next book is as good as this one. And, you know, and when you experience that thrill, it, it's just something that you, it's amazing to experience. And yet you'll... It really is. And, and yet I have guy friends who don't read at all, and I think to myself, oh my God, what they're missing. I just, I can't even imagine what that's like to not read a book. Now, that's strange to me. I mean, I, I've had a book... A hand 
all my life. But do you guys realize how talented you really are? I mean, do you wake up in the morning and think, we really are talented? Does that go through your head, or is that something that you don't even think about? No, I I don't think I've ever felt that way. But don't you? There are times I wake up and feel fortunate that we're able to do something that we thoroughly enjoy doing and that other people appreciate. But don't you feel like you do it very well, though? I, I don't. I don't ever come to. I, I have to wait until the editor or the reviewers come in and, and see it through somebody else's eyes. I can't. I can't find it uh, myself. But but you get a lot of good reviews. You oh always... yeah, and and that helps us see it as I said through other people's eyes, and we realize right. yeah we we did a good job that time. But you don't realize it yourself. You don't. You don't. You don't no, think about no. that. You think that would give you an ego? You think it would, would hurt your writing if you felt that way? I don't know whether it would or not. I mean, it just... Uh, I worry, and so does Charles, when we send a book off to the editor, and we're sort of on on uh, tenderhooks waiting for her to come back and say, you know, I loved it, or whatever. And really? It's really that nerve-wracking sometimes? Yeah, it is because you it's your creation. You've done it. Well, wouldn't you know? Wouldn't you know if it wasn't good, though? Yeah, you know if it isn't good, but you don't always know that it's good. (laughs) Here's the point, though. We might say, okay, we we accomplish what we meant to accomplish, and we feel good about this manuscript. The question is, is have we written the manuscript in such a way that we're able to communicate that concept to the reader? Because we know what the concept is. Right. The question is, is, can the reader translate that in their own mind's eye for that film we saw in our head and tried to put on paper that hopefully we'll have them recreate a similar movie in their own head? Right, Exactly. I didn't realize it was that that traumatic for you sometimes. <laughs> I mean, the- it's, not, it's not so much traumatic, but it, uh, well, I, I give you a perfect example. <clears throat> Your daughter has been taking piano lessons, mm-hmm. and in May, the piano teacher says we're going to have a recital. Oh! And you know your daughter is shy, right? But she's going to have to get up on the stage in her turn and perform. And you know she's been taking lessons for several years. You know she's good. I don't mean brilliant, but, you know, she's right. she's a, a good pianist. But you sit there when she walks on the stage holding your breath until it's over with. So that's how you feel? Sort of that way, yeah. Oh, that's, that's fascinating to hear that. I mean, I never thought it was, I guess I never really thought about that, that, that you would feel that way. Because you're so good at what you do. I mean... And but it's, it's our, our brainchild. But it, it, and reading mysteries is something that I've enjoyed for so many years that, that I, when I read a bad one, I know it's a bad one. I know it's bad. And it, uh, it, You can find the bad a lot easier than you can find the good. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think you're right about I mean, it. I read a book um, about three books ago, and uh, I thought... This could have been written by a high school, I mean, a college freshman. Mm-hmm. 
that you can find, but the really good ones when when you one of Nelson DeMille's books on on um, Vietnam or Dorothy Dunnett's books on on Lyman or um, people like that, you 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 just stand in awe of their talent. What, what exactly, exactly, and I and I think to myself. With you guys, I think well, they write so much. They two books a year. That's like full time. They're they're going. How do they ever have time to read anything else? And and you know when you you get so much enjoyment out of it, it would be a crime that you could if you couldn't read anything else. And I think how, where do they get the time to do it? I mean, with between editing. Oh, you'd be surprised. Breakfast, lunch, <laughs> dentist's office, doctor's office, flights, trains. Yeah. You find a way when you're hooked on books. You find a way to now, get you, that reading in. You don't. You don't write on the road when you're traveling, when you're going on tour or anything like that, or do you? Sometimes we do. We talk a lot. Right. We talk about what we're doing with the book. Do you ever get ideas from a book signing? Do you ever have a book signing and somebody gives you an idea about something you can? Not that you use their idea. I'm saying, but just something that sparks an idea in your head. That's something they've said. Has that ever happened? Um, we have to be careful about that because yeah. of of copyright issues. But sometimes they'll they'll tell us something that we can explore and find out more information about right. a situation. But uh, the poison lady uh, who comes to conventions talks about um, obscure poisons, and she gave us something on gas poison mm-hmm. gas one time that helped us figure out what we were doing in a book about that. Oh, wow. I mean, she was very, very... Um, Did she get acknowledged in that book? Us that kind of help. Right. Did she get acknowledged in the book? Was she? Was her name? I don't or? remember whether she did or not, but I certainly told her the next time I saw her. Oh, that, she must have felt great when you told her. <laughs> well, she, she's a fabulous person. Very, very interesting. So Everybody, Lucy is, is her name, but she's always called the poison lady. <laughs> She's at conventions, and she's really good. So what? what's on tap? Do you know what the next Rutledge book is about? Well, the next Rutledge has already been handed in. Are you serious? Yeah, it, it's, it was handed in in December, and uh, it's going into production. Uh, that's amazing. Are you allowed to say the title, or, you, or is it too early? We're still talking about the title. Really? Yeah, um, we had one thing in mind, and the editor thought uh, we should reconsider it. But uh, Rutledge has another rather intriguing case to deal with. Right. And we're working on the next best. Right. Now, the one that's coming out in the summer, that's already done? The best that's coming out in the summer is already finished? we're We're racing deadlines on that. Oh, okay. All right. So that, does so we've that got one book in the computer, one book in production, and one book on the bookshelves. <laughs> That's a lot of work. And that's how much sleep he gets a night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, it's, I can't believe the, the next Rutledge is already done. I'm just astounded. Now, is that is that all done with the rewrites and everything, or, or will there be rewrites? Pretty much all done. The copy edits haven't been done, but that's just checking punctuation and and spelling and 
facts to make sure that it was 1913 when such and such a thing happened and not 1923. How do you you keep up your energy, Carolyn? I've never seen anybody like you. You travel all over the country. You seem to have boundless energy. You never seem to age. How do you do it? What's that? Try keeping up with her. Yes. That's the problem. <laughs> I don't and I'm going along with my tongue dragging on the ground, and she's like, "Well, are you coming?" It's like, "Yeah, in a minute." <laughs> <laughs> so it, I, I, I love life and love doing things, and I love travel. So don't you ever get tired? Do you ever fall asleep at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, I fell asleep one night and had 30 pages of these that I had to erase the next morning. Is that right? I fell asleep with my hand on the D character, and I had 30 pages of I'm looking at all these, um, these you know, Barry Award winner, Independent Bookseller, Dilly's Award. Do, do all the awards mean the same to you, or are there some that mean more than others to you? Or are they all pretty much... They're all um, a tribute to Rutledge or to Beth, and they mean a lot for that reason. Mm-hmm. They, they have special meaning for different reasons. Um, for example, the... Uh, Mary Higgins Clark Award that we got for a shattered tree. Talk about when you you weren't a hundred percent sure what its future was. Um, that was one of them, but it it gave us a uh, opportunity to try something completely different, and uh, it worked out well. And so when it received that recognition, it meant a great deal. The McCavity Award meant a lot. The Agatha Award meant a lot. Uh, the Edgar nomination, the Anthony nominations meant a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, who's the emotional one between the two of you? Who's more emotional about it? You were, or you? I don't know. I mean, do you, do you get? I mean, when you're standing up there accepting an award, what? It must be emotional. You must. You must. I don't know how you could keep. A straight face. Is oh, it, it, your mind goes blank. <laughs> really? And you, you, you may have thought about something to say, but you're standing up there and all those faces are staring at you. And all you can think of is, they're putting this award in my hand. What am I going to say? <laughs> really? You're that terrifying. <laughs> but you don't, you I mean, don't... I, I know how Charles, what Charles's face looked like when an award came along. And and I'm sure my face must look like the same thing when, but it, it's a it's a tribute to the books. Mm-hmm. It's not we don't see it as a uh, so much as an award for us as it is for the for books and the people in those books. Exactly, exactly. And you have I mean, you have so that's many f- people in the books. That that's where really you know I mean, we feel very good for the people in the books. Hmm. Yeah. You have so many fans out there. I mean, so many people that can't wait for the next book and are, you know, chomping at the bit waiting for the next book. And it, that's tough when you love a series and you're, I mean, I can think of series right now that I can't wait to, for the next one to come out. And it's just you know, that feeling oh, it's of hard. it. It's hard. 
I know what it's like. And, you, and I, and you, I finish a book and I think, oh, if I'm lucky, it'll another one will be out in a year. Right, and and then you think of authors who take two or three years to write a book in this series, and then you oh. think, how in the world am I going to survive for three years without a book? I think of, that's heartbreaking. I I, th I think of uh, Elizabeth George that way. God, I can't wait for her next book, and then it's like. It's been two years and still no book, and you're you're ready to just like chomp, you know, you're ready to call her up yourself and say, you know, is it done yet? <laughs> you know? Deborah uh, we, get, we, we get a lot of emails that say just exactly what you just said. And and but you, but Deborah Crombie uh, had been behind on one of her books, and we kept I kept calling her up and saying to her. Where is it? Where is it? And in the acknowledgement, she thanked me for keeping her going. <laughs> oh, really? She she writes tremendous books, yeah. And you know, when you when you really love a series, God, it's like you you, you just can't. You don't know how. It's like it's like it's like being off a drug or something. It's really strange the feeling that you get. That oh, you, I know, I know. And when you know it's going to be that good, and and you're. When you finally get it, it's like, oh my gosh, I don't want to read this too fast because then there won't be anything after this. You know, it 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 makes it sound so crazy, but it's so true when you enjoy something it's that true. much. And and it, you just people who haven't experienced it, they'll never understand that, and they'll never understand that feeling. But but with your books, at least we have two a year. So when one is done, we don't have to wait too much long for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the one. There's only one book that I've ever read where I wouldn't read the end because the book had been so good, so well written. I didn't want to see what they did at the end. Really? And what was yeah, that? Yeah, that book? was Reginald Hill's The Woodcutter. Oh, I've heard about that book. That is a fascinating book. I, I, I um. Almost put it down at the very beginning because it starts off about uh, child molestation, which is not a subject I oh. find interesting to read about. Right. And and yet I went far enough to see where this was going, and I was hooked. And the twists and turns were such that I didn't want to know how it ended because I. So you never I, finished I just it? I couldn't imagine. Strange <laughs> <laughs> thing. Strange thing. I don't know whether you've ever had that experience or not, Charles. <laughs> I certainly have. Uh, no, I I couldn't bear on till I, I get to the end. I gotta know. Well, now I have to read that book. Now that you said that, now because <laughs> somebody else told me something about that book too. You're not the only person that's. You should that. read it as much as you like books. Right. Uh, you should read it. That's one of the. I don't think he's with us. My, is he gone, Reginald Hill? Yes, he's gone now. Oh. Well. And but this book was an extraordinary experience. Just like this. Uh, I I. Hmm. I stood in all. Really, and how cleverly that was done, and how beautifully it was done.
you wonder how they do it. You just you just have to when you read a great book, you think, well, how did they do it? How did they do this? How did they? Yeah. I mean, and they make it look so easy, and and you know you, you're turning the pages, and it's just flowing like a river, and it's just like, and you're like, where? How is this happening? It's like magic happening almost. Yeah, and it, you you just you can't believe it when the the last page comes. There's a sinking feeling. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that one out. Well, it's been great fun, as always, to talk to you guys. I, we could go on all night. <laughs> just, we could. I mean, there's so many things to talk about. But the new book, again, is called The Black Ascot. It's, I should mention it's from William Morrow, the 21st book in the series. And it's in all your bookstores. And all. Is, there is an audio version of this? There will yeah. be. I don't know just when that's uh, coming out, but very shortly. Caroline, it is already out. Uh, we've gotten some Facebook comments from people who've listened to it. The, one of our fans actually bought the book and then went out and bought the audio tape. Really? <laughs> is it the same person that does the audio every time? Uh, yes, uh, I think there was one exception. But... Uh, does the Rutledge books, and he does a very good job. What's his name? Simon Preble. Oh, Simon Preble, okay. Yeah. And, and does he actually do? I can't listen to the audios. Why? Well, I, I can read. Uh, I have a hard time rereading the books or, or listening to the audios because it's already in my head. Well, how does what is? How does he do the Hamish voice? Is the Hamish voice really done well? Yes, I think so. I read. Uh, I listen to the audio because a lot of times uh, we'll get contacted by a book group that is reading, say, Legacy of the Dead. And if I'm traveling, I'll bring the audio version of it and I'll listen to it while I'm driving just to refresh my memory about some of the nuances because when you go to a book group, people have just read it, so it is very uh, fresh to them. And they bring up things that you sit there and you go, and that doesn't go over very well. Do you guys, by the one one last thing, do you guys remember the plots of all your books? I mean, if I if I tell you all the titles, do you remember exactly the plot? I mean, do you have that kind yeah. of? You do. Well, once in a yeah. while, you'll remember the plot and can't bring back the title because you're talking about that plot and, and and it just escapes you how do you how can you have that extensive a memory where you can remember all that it's just because you've worked so hard on it is that why i think so we've lived it for six to eight ten months because there's authors that when you when you start talking about their book they'll be they'll forget things because they're working on another book and they'll you know and i've had authors do that they'll tell me well i I can't remember because I'm working on another book now. So they, they've actually moved on from the book that, that's currently out. So sometimes it's a little difficult to interview them because they don't, they don't remember every little it, detail. It's not, you know, it's not, uh, everybody has a different way of doing it. But I do remember one time when somebody told us that they really enjoyed and I looked at each other and said, Dog? What dog? <laughs> All of a sudden, we remembered what the dog was. Right. Well, it, 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 of course, that's going to happen once in a while. But, but this has been great fun, and thank you again, Charles and Carolyn. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much, David. It's good to be back with you again. Yeah, it's always it's always a pleasure. Keep up the good work. Keep up the good work. We'll 
we'll try. All right, and this has been David's Book Talk. We'll talk to you next time. You have just enjoyed the podcast of David's Book Talk, brought to you by your host, book lover, David English. Please visit us at davidbooktalk.com, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you, and we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scottolini, Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, Dale Brown, David Baldacci.